1: Well, good morning. Everybody doing okay? Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, we're going to jump right into things this morning. This is our, our fourth and final week in uh, the book of Esther. And if you're going like, how are we going to wrap this up in one week? So here's, I, this is on me. I, I confessed to some people earlier. I'm like, well, this is what happens when you try and shoehorn an entire book into like four weeks right before Advent. So we are going to wrap up Esther this morning. But um, I hope that God has used this this last three weeks four weeks including today, to teach you a little bit about who he is and what he's like. Here's here's the point of the book of Esther. The thing we've been saying over and over again is this is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God explicitly. It's one of the places in Scripture where he seems completely non-existent, like not even on stage, not even back in some control booth like some Wizard of Oz behind a curtain somewhere pulling strings. Like, Where is God? And I think that's the power of the book of Esther really is, That's a question that we ask so often in life, isn't it? Like, where is God? What is he doing? Are you in control? Are you sovereign? Are you good? And Esther just hovers in and out of these questions in her story over and over again. I think Esther is just such a powerful book for us in these days. And God's used this book in the last month to teach me a lot because I ask those questions too. And I know so many of you do as well. And so we're going to jump right into Esther. This morning, but as we do, I just want to ask you a question, and this is going to be one of those like weird introspective questions. You're just going to have to get comfortable being with yourself for a minute. Don't you want to believe that the wrong could be made right? Don't you want to believe that behind all these dark clouds that we see in our world, don't you want to believe that there's something behind there? So, I think that is the standout difference of the Christian hope. Is not that we minimize these dark clouds and these things that happen in our world. Not that we just go, eh, they're not that big of a deal. Let's just kind of keep rolling or, eh. But that we actually believe that behind them, underneath them, around them, is still the God who is working for our good. I think that's really the crux of the difference. And it's where Esther wants to drive us this morning. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 7. We're going to get right into it in a minute. But if you remember last week, we ended things a little bit on a cliffhanger. Haman, who is the villain in this whole story, who's plotted the annihilation of God's people, who's working against Esther and working against King Xerxes, this Persian king who does not know the Lord. Haman's wife has just made this slightly eerie prophecy over his life to say, Hey, if, if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, dude, you're not going to win. And so we've left things in the middle of a conversation. We had to hit pause last week. So with his ears ringing in fury and his heart pace quickening in fear, a cloud over his head and a hollowness in his heart, his image cracking and his plans falling, a knock comes to Haman's door. Someone is looking for him. This is Esther, actually, chapter 6, verse 14. It's right, right before chapter 7. Here's what it says. While they were yet talking, so this is Haman's family and closest friends, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now remember, she's already done this before. This is kind of like round three. Is she going to step up? And So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And you kind of have to wonder, with this negative word from his wife hanging over his head, if he sat down a little more quietly this time. Maybe he was a little bit more alarmed. Verse 2, and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? He said this before. It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Well, this sounds familiar. It's the exact same thing he said yesterday and the day before. And you got to kind of wonder, like, what is Xerxes thinking she's going to say? Like, another feast for me? I must be pretty awesome, right? Because Xerxes is a king with a little bit of an ego problem. But then, with the pressure building and building, and Esther's soul about ready to burst, she squares up, steps up, and speaks out. And here is this pivotal moment that this entire book has been waiting for. Verse 3, Queen Esther answered... If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish, and let my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with loss to the king. So, with those words, pleading for her life, Esther does four things first she reveals her jewish identity something that she's kept hidden for 7 years at this point think about that she pleads for her own life something that would have taken xerxes breath away and then in a leadership masterstroke she pleads for the life of her people file that away we're going to come back to this and then she reveals the reason why they have so much cause for danger she says we've been sold To be destroyed, to be killed, and annihilated, lifting the exact words from Haman's edict a couple chapters earlier, if you remember that. The ink is barely dry on Xerxes' declaration to annihilate the Jewish people, and here comes Esther saying, Hang on. Now think about this. This is incredibly bold. It's also potentially suicidal because remember Vashti, who was Queen 1.0. You remember her? She came in. King says, "Hey, Queen, I want you to um, walk in front of all of my guys here." show how beautiful you are! And she says, eh, "I'm not going to do that." She gets deposed and she's permanently banished from the king's presence. Can't even come around him. Can't even see him the rest of her life. That was Vashti, Queen 1.0. And then here's Esther saying, "Hey." Not only am I not going to do it, you made a big mistake, Xerxes. You've done something that you don't understand. But behind that, there's another angle to this that we've got to see. Because here's what she's implying. Not only is this a problem for me, but king, somebody outfoxed you. Somebody got you to sign something you didn't want to sign. Somebody's working against you. Somebody is undermining your authority, king, and that's the kind of stuff that drives Xerxes crazy. So he presses in in verse 5. Here's what he says. Then the king said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Literally, whose heart has thus filled him? If You get the King James. And then Esther says, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king And the queen. Busted. But it's all out in the open now, and Xerxes, like tense and terse, like staccato questions capture the tone of this room. Who is he? Where is he? Whose heart filled him to do this? Like, oh gosh. And Haman's sitting there hearing the whole thing go down. Holy smokes, what's gonna happen to me? So let's leave this tension in the air for a second. I want to give you a little piece of historical background just to give you some context as to why Haman has reason to be so terrified of this king. So Xerxes kind of has a thing about loyalty, right? You haven't picked that up by now. If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you better watch your back. So a couple of years earlier, Xerxes is busy invading the kingdom of Greece. Remember, we talked about that, where he goes out in the middle of the sea and whips the sea for its disobedience, okay? This is Xerxes, incredibly emotionally stable, <coughs> rational person. Along the way into Greece, he meets somebody named Pythias, Pythias, okay? Pythias was a gold miner in the ancient world. He was the second most wealthy person in Persia, second only to Xerxes, and Pythias sees an opportunity here. He says, I can get on the king's good side. So he takes all of his gold that he's working and he diverts some of this funding to King Xerxes to help him conquer Greece. True story. And so Pythias kind of lives the rest of his life kind of going, man, one day I'm going to cash in on all this stuff for Xerxes. One day he's going to reward me for my loyalty. While well, the years go by and the day comes where Pythias comes to Xerxes and he says, hey, king, here's the deal. I know that military service is compulsory for all of my five sons, but I'm getting older and I would like the oldest of my five sons to come home and take care of me in my old age. Simple request, right? Makes sense? Like a little small favor for someone who's shown you a ton of loyalty? Guess what Xerxes does? Xerxes lets his son go, then he cuts him in half and he marches the entire Persian army through the two pieces. This is Xerxes. Okay? Can you understand why Haman is a little bit terrified at this point? Take everything you know about this guy. This sea-whipping, sun-splitting Maniac. How well do you think he's going to handle Haman undermining his authority? Esther just lit the short fuse on a powder keg that's about to blow, and she's basically given Xerxes an ultimatum. It's Haman or it's me. And you can taste justice coming, can't you? But before it gets there, the drama ratchets up a little bit. Go to verse 7. The king arose in his wrath, right? Because he just named Haman as the one who's been working behind the scenes. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. That's ironic, isn't it? For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Okay, at least he has some emotional intelligence. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Ruh-roh. And as the word, or as, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So what's happening here? Xerxes, red-eyed and fuming, heads to the garden. Can't really say why. Could be because he needed to clear his head. Probably not likely because Xerxes is used to making decisions when he's angry. Could be to strategize about where Haman's pieces are going to go. That's likely. But most likely, Xerxes realizes he's actually caught in a little bit of a pickle here. We've got to understand this to see what God does. Xerxes can't really go after Haman because of the edict that went out, because he signed it. Xerxes gave Haman his ring and said, here. And so Xerxes approved of the whole thing. And so how is he going to get Haman off of this thing? What is he going to do? He's kind of caught in a little bit of a pickle, but timing is everything, and characteristically, Haman's cannot be worse. And so resolved that Haman's got to go, Xerxes storms back into his courtroom to find Haman, Ironically, realizing that his life is now in this little Jewish girl's hands. Haman falling on the couch, presumably on top of Esther. Quick background. Persian courtroom etiquette dictates that if someone wants to speak to the queen, they can do it, but they can't get any closer than seven feet Good little fact to have tucked away in the back of your imagination for this scene, right? This is like Xerxes' kind of way of going, hey, you can look, you can't touch. She's off limits. She's not yours. She's mine. And here's Haman, practically on top of her, game over. I don't know if you've caught this, but we'll read it more here in just a second, that Esther is referred to Queen Esther five times in this chapter, more than ever before, signifying that yes, according to Mordecai's prophecy, she had come to this place for such a time as this. And now Mordecai has outmaneuvered him, Esther has outsmarted him, and so what comes next is probably unavoidable. Take a look in verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, hey, remember those gallows? (laughs) that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, those are standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, done, hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king was abated. Now there's something we need to get around to this here. There's a little ironic detail. The final nail in the coffin of Haman's fate comes by way of false accusation. He wasn't sexually assaulting the king, or the queen, He was just begging for his life. But what's the ironic detail in there is that what sentences him to death is the exact same thing that he accused the Jews of, this false accusation that they don't obey the law. They're this weird people. So poetic justice is about to be served. And if it ended there, we'd be okay, right? Like you go, hey, Mordecai promoted, Haman done. Good, close the book. Let's move on to Advent, right? But there's more to it here. There's still a problem. And this is where the story really gets good to me. It's because over 2 million square miles from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, God's people are still under the knife. Haman's dead, Esther is safe, but that edict is still in force. 2 million square miles of Jewish people about to be annihilated. What's going to happen? And if you thought Esther was courageous here, Just wait to see what this little orphan girl turned queen does next. Take a look in chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan that Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, Four things, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in your sight, if this thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now here's her questions. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Here's what we need to see here. One word, influence, influence. Everybody in this room and everybody watching online, everyone has some measure of influence. If you own a business, it's influence over your business. Okay? If you are a parent, it's influence over your kids. If you're a grandparent, it's, that influence extends to your grandkids. If you're a neighbor, your influence extends to your friends and your neighbors influence some of us have more some of us have less but here's the point the thoughtful christian sees influence differently from the world in two very crucial ways first way whatever influence you have has been given to you by god and you may think you've earned it you may think like you got there you achieved it on your own own steam not true The truth underneath that is that whatever influence you have has been given to you by God. That's the first crucial distinction. Second crucial distinction with influence is that if God gave you your influence, he then has the right to say what it's for. This is his influence that he's loaning to you. And here's the insight. Whatever influence you have isn't for you. Whatever influence you have is for others. You exist in whatever position you have for someone else. We don't exist for ourselves. This is really clear right from this text. And this is Esther, at least in my opinion, this is Esther at her most courageous. First, Esther pleads for her life, and that's bold, and that's courageous, But then, she makes the riskier, tougher, ultimately game-changing decision to extend her influence beyond her life to include the lives of her people. And she lifts Xerxes' eyes to see beyond just the palace walls, over two million square miles. Now, here's why that's risky. is because at that point, the king could have said, you know, Esther, like, I'm glad you're safe because, you know, you and me, we kind of have a thing going on here. <clears throat> but this business about your people, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> I, I really can't do that. You know, that's really going to embarrass me, Esther. I appreciate your boldness, but um, I'm done with you now. Uh, tell Vashti I said hi, right? That's what he could have done. So what does he think of Esther's passionate plea? Verse 7. Then the king said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. New rule. Leave God's people alone. This from the mouth of a pagan king. Now beneath the plot, here's what I want us to see. God did not put you where you are so we can work your plan and keep yourself safe. God puts you where you are so you can work his plan ensuring that others are safe. That is a big deal right from this text. Esther's greatest moment, her crowning achievement, the biggest thing she's ever done, has nothing to do with her It's when she leans in, lifts her voice, lends her influence, and boldly says, not me, them. She turns her life inside out. How many of us live with that kind of courage? I don't, most days. Just being honest. Like, especially in these days, right? My inner monologue, that little voice in the back of my head, is just going, God, just make sure everything is okay. And if you get to them, great. Great. I just don't want my world jacked with too much, God. Here's something I've been wondering, and just letting you into my kind of prayer life a little bit. What if our enemy's greatest tactic in these deliciously divisive days in which we find ourselves has been to subtly convince the church that preserving ourselves is more crucial than serving others? And what if we're just becoming really good at stewarding part of our influence? Self-preservation isn't even half of what we are called to do. Because that's not courage. Courage is not standing up for myself when the world is against me. That's just self-preservation. Courage is standing up for others when their world is against them. That's mission. That's what we're called to do. And in the coming years, what will we be known for? Will we be known for defending ourselves? Or will we be known at looking at a world at risk and courageously standing up, speaking up, and asking, who else? Not just me. Who else? So how does this turn out? Take a look in verse 14. Verse 14 So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. Quite a contrast from the sackcloth and ashes from just a couple of days earlier, huh? Royal robes, blue and white. With a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The irony here is so, 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 so good, and I hope you're catching it. Haman falls before Esther to plead for his life, denied, results only in pain. Esther falls before the king to plead for her people, request granted, and she finds her life's purpose, before the first edict, Haman mourns in sackcloth and ashes. After the second one, he's got royal robes on. What a beautiful contrast! Chapter four: the people grieve in four ways. The Mourn, fast, weep, and wail. Here they celebrate in four ways. There's light, gladness, joy, and honor. Everything that was is no longer. Everything that couldn't possibly be is. Everything that you absolutely thought would happen doesn't. And everything that we thought, God, could you possibly do this? He doesn't. This is the great thing. Even the day that God's people choose to celebrate. It's right there in the text. It's the 13th day of the 12th month. And that's a little detail that we may not have caught but this is the exact day that Haman had marked for God's people's extermination. And then here they are celebrating. What was a day of death becomes a day of deliverance. What was going to be the end of everything becomes the start of everything. And where they were going to fall into their enemies' hands, now God's people rest securely in their father's hands. What's the point of all that? Here's Esther in a nutshell. Our God is the God of great reversals. Our God is the God of great reversals. Anybody else thankful for that? Like, this is just what our God does over and over and over again. This is his story. Think about in the Old Testament what's Joseph's life about? Joseph's wrongfully accused, sold into slavery, gets, I mean, like a good chunk of his prime years apparently wasted. And then he gets to the end of it and he has this wonderful perspective where he says, What you intended for evil, God worked for good. This great reversal. You see this all the way in the New Testament. You go to John chapter 4, this woman at the well, and you see it over and over and over again. This woman who says, I'm a sinner, I know it, you know it, Jesus knows it, he loves me anyway. All of a sudden, things start flowing the other way. This is Paul dragging Christians out of their home by their hair and killing them, and then the next minute, he's planting churches. What is that? This is you, and this is me. We're an object of wrath and then we become an adopted child. We're lost and alone, drifting through life and then we're brought near and we're given hope and then we're given purpose. This is just what our God does. Our God is the God of great reversals. And so here's where we're going to go next for the next 12 minutes or so. Before we close the book on Esther, there's kind of this like table clearing feeling where it's like, okay, what else didn't we get to? And so you just got to go... Like everything that didn't make it into the mixing bowl, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to give us five principles from the book of Esther that I want to help, and I want to use to help frame our thinking in these days. Five principles that um, I believe come right out of this text that we need to understand. Principle number one, God is unstoppable. And you've seen this over the last couple of weeks. As a book, Esther plays a lot with the emotion of fear, doesn't it? God's people have a lot to be afraid of. Esther has a lot to be afraid of. And we talked about fear a couple of weeks ago during our stock series, but here's the idea. The best way to gospel your heart against the power of fear is not to minimize fear's power, but to maximize God's power. That's a very good thing to keep in mind. There is a monster under your bed. Yes, the world is broken, but your daddy is just down the hall, and he is stronger, and he loves you more, And that monster needs to be afraid. Listen to this. This is Isaiah's take on it. Just listen as I read this. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Here's what he says. Behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket they're accounted as dust on the scales he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering all the nations are like nothing before him they are accounted by him as less than nothing emptiness do you not know have you not heard what a great question don't you know Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He blows on them and they wither. And then he continues at the very end of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel? Put your own name in there. Why do you say, and why do you speak, and why do you think, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Like, let me correct all of this darkness, all this brokenness that we just see. Yeah, it's there. But our God is bigger, and he is stronger, and he is unstoppable. Here's David's take on it. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does everything that pleases him. What a big vision of God that is. Here's Daniel. His dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will, whatever he wants to in the host of heaven. Among the inhabitants of earth, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can say that to God. What have you done? No one can question him. We should hold these texts tightly because they remind us of the actual truth under the perceived truths in our world. Let me put a fine point on this. Politicians don't run our world. They think they do, but they don't. Edicts, restrictions, whatever, they can't break a life. Feels like they do, but they can't. Governments can't change the course of history. They're not that powerful. We have a God who is. He hasn't left the throne. He hasn't given up. He hasn't abdicated his authority. He doesn't need a quorum. He's never up for re election. He never steps away. God is always, always working his perfect plan. Let's never lose sight of that, please. Principle number two. Spiritual courage leads to spiritual courage. Esther is a woman of profound spiritual courage. And I love that about her character. Standing on this threshold, about to go into the king's door, her life could be snuffed out. And she shows profound spiritual courage. I don't know if you know this, but like Esther as a narrative, the whole story is a really rare gift because we get a window into the spiritual development of an orphan girl who becomes a sex trophy, a sex trophy who becomes a queen, and then a queen who submits to God's plan and saves her people. And here's the insight. When we first meet Esther in Esther chapter 2, from the time then, and then when we really see her stand up and speak out, I'm not sure if you've been tracking with that, that is seven years. That's a lot of time. So how does she go from here to here? Here's the insight. She is a person of profound spiritual courage, but that kind of spiritual courage is not born overnight. It doesn't happen like that. Here's what this means for us. When you look at Esther's spiritual life that starts as this barely audible whisper and then crescendos until she's this giant, unavoidable, life changing symbol crash, here's what this means. There are days coming, guys. (laughs) where the church in the West will have to summon spiritual courage from somewhere. And we don't want to live naively believing that whatever you're afraid of is just going to pass us by. And we don't want to live short-sightedly believing that we'll be able to stand up immediately when it gets here. Don't kid yourself. Here's my burden as a pastor. And I just feel the need to be vulnerable with you. To represent Christ in the coming years is going to require a commitment to truth that is deeper and a commitment to love others that is wider than many Christians are currently capable of. And I'm not saying that to shame us. I'm saying to alert us. We need spiritual depth. We need to be in the word. You need to have an actual relationship with the Lord. Cute, pithy, churchy sounding cliches are not going to cut it. But then we also need spiritual breadth. We need to love people that we disagree with. It's okay. And here's what I'm saying. If we spend all of our time claiming and climbing and conquering mountains that aren't worth it, I worry if we're going to have spiritual strength left to conquer the ones that will be worth it, that we have to. So how are you going to get there? I'll give you this one for this principle This idea of developing spiritual courage is somehow intimidating for you. Do today what tomorrow you wish you would have done yesterday. Clear? You're like, I don't even know what that means. Do today what tomorrow you wish you would have done yesterday. Everybody has a first day at the gym, right? Same thing is true spiritually. Do today what tomorrow you wish you would have done yesterday. Start with these small things. Get in the word. Have a prayer life. Be around other people. Talk about Jesus as much as you can. Invite the people that you disagree with over for dinner. You'll be fine. And you'll develop spiritual courage. And it will lead to spiritual courage. Principle number three. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We need to zoom way up for this one. So throughout God's history, you look through God's word. God makes promises with his people. These promises are called covenants. The first covenant he made was with Adam. Remember? Way back in the garden, he said, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to make all of this right. Then he makes one to Noah and then Moses and Abraham where he says, count the stars. That's going to be your future. Then he makes one to David where he says, one day I'm going to send a king that's going to come out of your family. He's going to rule forever. Those covenants just roll out throughout Scripture. They just keep coming and coming and coming. Here's what this means for the book of Esther No one can destroy what God has promised to preserve. No one can destroy what God has promised to preserve. Whether he's obvious and out in the open splitting a sea, or he's behind the scenes of a Persian bedroom. Whether his people are at home in Israel or they're 900 miles away in Persian exile. Whether they're at peace with their neighbors or they're living as slaves. God is always working to keep them, sustain them and show them that he loves them. There's nothing he won't do for them. There's no place he won't go for them. Now, here's what this means for you. Unless you're ethnically Jewish, not very much. But... Stay with me. If you follow these covenants and these promises through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we'll see something amazing. Hours before Jesus goes to a cross and his earthly life is over, he says something incredible, and you've got to see this. In an upper room celebrating Passover, When God's people remembered how he delivered them from Egypt, Jesus chooses that moment to stop dinner, hold up a cup, and say, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. What's he saying? Slow down on that to really see it. Remember when God said that he was going to send a rescuer? Remember when God said he was going to bless all people? Remember when God said He's going to install a king who will rule forever, king above all kings? What Jesus is saying in that moment is all of that points to me. And what I'm going to accomplish tomorrow on a cross is going to fulfill everything that God has planned in all of redemptive history. That's what that was about. And if God has been faithful to his people then, lost as they felt, he'll be faithful to you now. One reason, Christ and Christ alone. No one can destroy what God has promised to preserve. If you're hidden in Christ, God cannot not be faithful to you. If you're hidden in Christ, he will never leave you. If you're hidden in Christ, he will always sustain you. No one can destroy what God has promised to preserve. Leads to principle number four. Jesus is a king like no other. Xerxes is a chump. (laughs) You know that. And I get it. Like, we're reading through here, and you're like, how can this guy, this bozo, this, like, Terrible person. How can he lead the world? How can God let this happen? For all his sea-whipping, harem-filling, sun-splitting swagger, he's just a king. He's a big king. At the time, he's the biggest king in the ancient world, but he's just a king. Aren't you thankful that he's not the king? In his commentary on Esther, Ian de puts it like this. I just want to read this to you because this is amazing. King Xerxes is ignorant, shallow, fickle, and weak. He can be manipulated. He has no concern for anyone except himself, no morality except his own personal interest. But, now get this, we have a king who doesn't need to be manipulated or cajoled to do what's right. Our king does what's right because he himself is righteous. We have a king who instead of being consumed with himself and his own interest has staked his name and his reputation on people who he always calls his own even when it is costly for him to do so. We have a king who far from inventing charges against us took the charges that we rightfully incurred against him as we ought and he took them on himself. Guys, we've got to see this. There is more gospel in Esther than maybe you've ever thought before. Esther is like the gospel's shadow. Like you see Jesus working, and you're like, oh, is that him? You catch him out of the corner of your eye, you're like, oh, wait, what, what was that? He's not clear yet. But let me fast forward. Revelation 4. This is at the end of all things. Jesus moves out from behind the curtain and he moves out into the clearing, and here's what it says. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what's coming. Because we all see kings. But the question that I have to ask you is, do you know the king? Does he have your heart? Does he own you? Do you belong to him? Do you live your life for him? He's a king like no other. The choir is going to come out in just a minute. And they're going to sing a song called, Is He Worthy? But before they do, I want to ask you this last principle, principle number five. And this is the biggest point of it. If God can change an empire, he can change your life. Esther does end in this place where you go like, well, what was that all about, God? What am I actually supposed to get out of this? I got a different view than maybe I had of you. I looked at you more sovereignly than maybe I had before. But we have to land at this point that if God is so sovereign, he can change the direction of an empire. He can change the direction of your life. And some of you need to hear that right now. Because maybe your life is headed in the wrong direction and you're tired of it and you just don't know what to do about it. Maybe your life flows all about you. And you do really good. Don't make it look bad, you know. But maybe people serve your ends rather than you serving theirs. Maybe your life is just stuck somewhere, and maybe you don't have a direction, and maybe it's just sitting in stagnant water. Maybe there's old addictions that just keep coming back, and you're tired of it, but you don't know what to do about it. And so here's what I want to invite you to do as we wrap up Esther and turn our hearts you can be sitting for this song. And I just want you to listen as they sing and play. And maybe what you need to do right now is just drop to your knees at your seat and say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of trying to live my life on my own terms. I'm tired of life that's all about me. My, my life is going a direction that I don't want it to go. Will you change me? This can be true of you if you've been following Jesus for decades. This could be true of you if this is your very first time sitting in a church just to say, Lord, fix me, I give up. (laughs) I just want to encourage you in this time, take the quiet and take a few moments. Ask the God of the universe for forgiveness for making life all about me because we have broken it and we feel it more than we know it. It's deep in the pit of our stomach that we have blown every opportunity to try and do good. Nothing we do is ever enough and we feel that. That's why Jesus came, to fix all of that. And so maybe you're stuck this morning, and you don't believe that there's a God who's watching you. Take a few moments and crawl out to him, just silently to yourself, and say, Lord, I need you. Fix me. Let me pray. God, we come to you and the confident hope that you hear us, not because we are good or because we are worthy or we have anything to bring you, God. You control heaven and earth, and so you control our lives. You know everything about us, and you love us anyway. So, Father, we ask for your help. And in these moments, God, would your spirit move, would your spirit work to do what only you can do, We look at our broken world and we feel so helpless and hopeless and alone and afraid. Father, would you bring us comfort and courage in these days? Because of what you have done, you alone are worthy. And we say thank you, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media.